0: This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you.
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going?
2: I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited uh, by this interview. For this interview, uh, we're joined in the studio by one of the big names in the Australian financial landscape.
1: That's it. It is our pleasure to welcome to the studio, John Sevier. John, welcome. Thanks, guys. It's a big wrap. I hope
3: I can can live (laughs) up to it.
1: John founded Early Funds Management in 2012 after 17 years at Perpetual Investments, where he was head of equities. He has over 25 years of experience managing funds of individuals, super funds, public institutions, and charitable organizations. And today, we're going to be sitting down with John to unpack how everything unfolds at Early, the investment process. His thoughts on current market conditions, and then of course we're going to close out with some company-specific chat. So we can't wait to get stuck in. Let's do it.
2: Yeah. Now, John, you say it's a big wrap, but it is a fair wrap. You're uh, you are one of the big names, and we are very excited to talk to you and learn from your experience. But to start with, we want to go back to the very beginning of your investment journey and hear the story of your first investment. We generally hear a good lesson, or there's generally a good story that comes out of it. So. Can you take us back and start at the very beginning and tell us the story of your first investment?
3: Well, look, I have to dust off the old cranial uh, cobwebs. That's so <laughs> uh, nearly 40 years ago uh, <laughs> that I made my first uh, decision, which was, was in first investment decision, was actually where I'd, I'd claim some sense of propriety. And that was a company called Plumrose Australia. Its uh, antecedents were from another era, and their main business was canned meat. Uh, think spam, spam yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, canned plum puddings and cakes self-sourcing cakes okay so that was the core business and it was controlled by a Danish parent company and there was a minority listing in Australia I was cutting my teeth in the in the stock market with a small stockbroken firm in Melbourne and I was tutored in the art of uh, fundamental analysis by a terrific Old fella, there who used to a uh, uh, he used to smoke in the office, and he used to <laughs> model uh, on butcher's paper, and uh, wow. he really showed me um, the basics of fundamental analysis. Anyway, Plumrose Australia canned meats, can cakes, their newest product. They won the distribution rights for YoPlay in Australia. Oh, okay, uh, and flavoured yoghurt was a whole new market, and needless to say, from Uh, Ground zero, the business grew like Topsy. It was growing at something like 30% a month or a quarter. I can't remember what the time period was, but you could just, even just some basic back of the envelope butcher's paper modelling, you could see that this thing was really going to be a company maker. So I thought this actually fits with what I came to understand was a good sensible investment and I bought my first shares. And fortunately and unfortunately, the company was taken over within a few months of me making my investment and I made 30 or 40% in uh, in very short order, which was terrific for my sense of uh, confidence <laughs> uh, and my bank balance uh, as about a 21-year-old at the time, but terrible to have a big win first up because I probably... Uh, I probably developed a bit of over overconfidence, but that was my very first investment based on uh, the principles that I understood to be the things you look for and when you invest in companies. Love it.
1: So John, when you're starting out as a beginner investor, there's often a lot of noise and you you can feel overwhelmed as to where to look and what really matters and what doesn't as, as an investor. So with all the experience that you've had in markets, what have been some of your biggest sort of lessons when it comes to understanding what really matters and what doesn't?
3: Well, I think it's a bit of both, and I think the things that noise is uh, is a big factor, increasingly so because there's and and we talk about this a lot at work. You know, when Matt and I started out nearly thirty years ago, we actually thought we had uh, some information advantage, but there's so much good material. You know, the stuff you guys do and others, people have got access to uh, some really you know sensible, considered. You know, views and opinions and and gu- general guidance in investing. But when you start, when I started out, there was no real noise. All I really understood investing to be about was individual companies, and ultimately, that's what still matters to me. I've gone through ser- you know s- s- various forms of uh, or various iterations of myself as an investor. But the hardest thing to do, and I think the follies that I have learned and reflected on in my time investing, it's so difficult to call markets, call or time markets. Uh, and that's where a lot of the noise is, you know, markets up, markets down, mm. who knows why they're up or down on any given day. Someone's got to give an explanation, but it really isn't particularly instructive. So uh, it doesn't mean I haven't uh, many times over in the last 30 odd years tried to time markets, but I think that's, that's a loser's game in the long run. Dealing with the universal themes of fear and greed, emotion, uh, these are all human characteristics, not investment characteristics. But what I've found the most sustainable way of investing over time, and temperament obviously comes into it, that's a human factor, is investing in individual companies, understanding what matters to you as an investor, and finding the businesses, A, that you understand, and B, that fit your temperament and what you understand to really matter in investing. One, and I was reminded of this uh, last week where we had a a young 15-year-old schoolgirl do work experience with us. And whenever we get young kids do work experience, they basically just trail us around for the week and whatever experience we have, it's an immersion program. And uh, they basically do whatever we do. And at the end of the week, we give them some little assignments to do along the way, comparing company A and company B in an industry. And we, we give them a sense of how our sort of template, as it were, of investing. And it's a bit of a checklist for comparing apples and apples within sectors. And I said at the end of the week, you know, what have you learnt? And she'd done some great analysis and I said that she said the thing, and this is me, uh, my words for her explanation, I thought the stock market was this big amorphous number. Uh, the index was this big amorphous number. What I've learnt is... It's a whole lot of individual companies, each with their own story. And as I said to her, I couldn't have summed it up better myself.
2: Yeah, that is great. Well, if you ever want to open up that shadow program to two thirty-year-olds, uh, <laughs> would would love to put an application in.
3: <laughs> well, unfortunately, you don't cut the uh, meet the age cut off. Uh,
2: <laughs> um, but love your enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. So, John, the last uh, few months, I think if there was a word to sum up uh, how investors are feeling it's nervous. You know, we've seen the tech sell-off. We're hearing stories about inflation, oil prices. There's a there's a lot of reasons to be nervous. And over the last 25 years that you've been in markets, there's been some nervous moments or some catastrophic moments that you've lived through and invested through. The Asian financial crisis, the tech wreck, the JFC, COVID in 2020. When you look back in those moments and how markets got nervous and then fell... Um, do, are there any lessons from those moments that you sort of applied to investing today? I think they're, again,
3: they're universal themes uh, and they come re- come back to fear and greed, really. I mean, they are the most exciting times. The most exciting times in markets are uh, when the lights are flickering and, and threatening to go out and, and all of those events would fit that criteria and they provide overwhelmingly... The single best opportunities every cycle to deploy capital, mm. uh, and the other exciting time is when things get crazy frothy. You know, read tech boom, tech boom 1.0. I'm, well, you'll work out I'm a, an analog kind of guy, so I'm really just toying <laughs> with the concept of tech boom one, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, whatever the. Whatever the fad, whatever the mania is, uh, obviously the GFC was over-leveraged businesses, uh, property bust. Whatever the mania is at time, that's an exciting time because it means that everyone's attention is being drawn to often a very narrow choke uh, and it creates a whole of other opportunities in other sectors. So within those points of extreme, of uh, extreme greed and extreme fear, the market really, it can be quite dull. And that's the time, uh, in a general sense, where you've got to prepare for those opportunities. And obviously, there are opportunities that present relative opportunities that present themselves, or absolute opportunities that present themselves every day, which you've got to be prepared for. And in fact, every day does present some sort of relative opportunity. In between those periods of extreme, market extremes, um, it's the time for doing
1: doing the hard work. Mm. Yeah. So, John, as a 21-year-old, you started with fundamental analysis on Butcher's paper. Since then, how has your investing philosophy developed over time and, and how would you describe it today? I'd describe
3: it as um, I'm a balance of probabilities guy, uh, which doesn't really fit any normal characterization of an investment, of investment classification. So, it's not growth or value or GARP. So we try not to be, and I personally try not to be, pigeonholed uh, at early. I try and stay open-minded and flexible, but without compromising the base principles. So I guess I started out with some pretty basic uh, fundamental analysis, which really was the entry into, understand, into the market. And I had a fortunate first experience. Then, of course, I forgot all of that in the, <laughs> in the, uh, the heat and froth of the early 80s mining boom. Well, I was going to say I became a speculative investor. There, that they probably are unlikely bedfellows. I was a speculator punting on uh, punting mining stocks. So I think I had a base a base understanding, and then I totally forgot it in the pursuit of
2: <laughs> you know a fast buck, as you do in your early twenties. Yeah. So look, we we joke that it's a rite of passage for Australian investors to have their speculative mining phase. Everyone everyone has that one. Everyone, <laughs> they do, and it's appropriate to your age,
3: right? I think it it is a rite of passage in investing. <laughs> I've never thought of it as a rite of passage, <laughs> but I think it is in investing. And fortunately, I sold most of my stuff before the eighty seven crash, where the market fell. I don't know twenty or twenty five percent in a day, and that was a real wake up call. And I thought, shit, this is actually a serious game. It's not just, mm. uh, it's not a walk in the park. Mm. And I think that's when I began to start reading and trying to educate myself as an investor. So I think I've evolved over time from being, uh, I think the very first proper book I read was a book by Sir John Templeton, who happened to be a good friend through his church uh, with one of the partners of the small firm I worked with. That was really about being contrarian and value investing. I think that's that characterised my style for a long, long time. Uh, I think I've evolved to be a much sort of more open-minded investor, but the principles that I learnt then are the principles I've applied myself and in the teams I've worked with at Perpetual and Early since, which go to you know, core fundamentals of, of balance sheet and the quality of business and the people that run the businesses.
2: I love the uh, balance of probabilities guy way of summing it up. There's so many strong opinions about how how you should invest and there's merits to to all of them and um,
3: maybe it's a bit of a cop-out the Samo balance of probabilities guy but I do understand I do marvel at people who have these incredibly strident views yeah. and I think gee I wish I could have that level of conviction uh, as I say it's not a typical investment style but I think it best characterizes how I how I think about investing. Yeah. Do Try to like tilt the odds in my favour. Do you
1: feel like you'd miss more opportunity though if you had that just high conviction it's this way or the highway?
3: Possibly. Possibly. Mm. But I, I, I couldn't say with any, well, talking about conviction, with any conviction at all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so John, uh, talking about your investment philosophy, we had a look at Ailey's, uh investment philosophy and Ellie's difference, I guess. And... A key thing that stood out uh, was that you really start with financial strength before them looking at the quality of the business, the management, and then uh, perhaps how a business is underappreciated. So let's let's start with financial strength because it's you know you, you hear it all the time. We hear it from um, all uh, the expert investors we speak to. It's it's really the name of the game when you're investing. But what does financial strength mean? To early and what in particular are you looking for uh, that sort of indicates strength?
3: We're looking first at what could go wrong. If, if you can sort of guarantee the base case or the downside case, then often the upside looks after itself. So what can go wrong and what's the most quantifiable thing you can measure that can go wrong? And that's to get into financial trouble. So the first thing we're looking to do is to uh, find companies that we think are on the balance of probabilities, can survive most economic environments. Yep. Uh, and obviously you think of all of those market events that you talked about earlier, they're all shocks, uh, not just to the system but to individual companies and they do sometimes imperil the, the future of those businesses from a financial point of view. So we're looking at, uh, at a basic level, cash flow cover of, of, uh, of debt, uh, interest cover, now we might look at debt to equity where it's appropriate, but uh, we're looking at cash flow cover of debt and interest cover they're the they're the basic mm. metrics we look at, and we've got a sort of a hurdle of five times interest cover, which we think is very conservative relative to uh, the market in general, but it gives us the ability to sleep at night knowing that companies that we own are in In good financial shape.
2: There are so many financial metrics uh, these days, um, and so many ratios that get spun out of those metrics. Are there any that you think are just not worth the paper they're written on?
3: (laughs) Not wanting to judge other people's investment styles. In fact, talking about work experience, kids. One of the first things I do when when uh, day one, the first thing after I explain how we think about investing, our our process is pull out the Morningstar or Mercer survey of 86 managers or whatever the number is and say all of these 86 fund managers starting at aardvark investments down to xylophone investments, (laughs) they all think they've got a magic formula Mm. for beating the market. Yeah. So who am I to judge what wins? Well, the numbers will tell you what wins in the long run, but the merits of one investors' process over another. So these are the factors or these are the metrics that have worked for us over a long, long period of time. We don't try and overcomplicate it. Our clients understand it. More importantly, we understand it. <laughs> so I don't uh, spend the time trying to judge other people's yeah. What matters to them it really is what matters to us mm. and whether it works.
1: Yeah. So another part of the um, early investment process, I guess, or philosophy is to find quality businesses that are underappreciated. Uh, and looking at some of the, the top 10 positions of the fund, there are some pretty big names in there, ones that are very recognisable, Combank, Macquarie, Wes Farmers. W- why do you think the market underappreciates these big names and w- what's, how does Airlie think differently about these?
3: Well, I'll separate valuation from, you know, that's the last thing we look at. We don't look at valuation first. We look at we're trying to assess the quality of business first. And you look at those big names and you think, yeah, they are big names that anyone could buy yesterday, today, tomorrow. I think we all understand those businesses. And they may not be appreciated in the here and now, but in the long term, this is a comment that's you know made today, we could have made it yesterday, we could have made it tomorrow. But in the long run, we think, and I think their track record has proven that there's an enduring quality to those businesses that has a compounding benefit to investors. So you look at West Farmers, and it's the most recent specific advantage we we could refer to. We'd owned the stock for a few years. It had gone nowhere. Rob Scott came in. I'm not sure with a mandate for change, but, but certainly a mandate to improve shareholder returns. And we'd had some discussions, and it was our own analysis that there was a great underappreciated business within West Farmers, and that was Bunnings, which was 65, which is I forget what the number was, was over half their their earnings, Mm. and it was buried in the conglomerate structure. And we made a case for separating Bunnings out on its own. We thought it was probably 30% undervalued on a standalone basis. Anyway, in their wisdom, West Farmers chose one to close Bunnings UK, which was an unmitigated disaster. So yeah. that's the capital allocation decision. And two, to spin out coals. And it had the, the benefit of showing more of Bunnings to the market. And I think it's now about 65% of group earnings. And the stock price was up about 50% uh, over a 12 to 18-month period, having done nothing uh, for a period of time. Commonwealth Bank, it's been universally disliked by the market relative to other banks in Australia for virtually my entire investing career. There's a great slide in every pack, uh, any results pack, where it's the it's the most favoured financial institution for one third of Australians that use financial institutions, which is you think of a business that has a third market share for what is effectively, uh, not market share, that's a favoured it's a favoured institution for what is effectively a commoditised mm. product, financial services, and you think that's a special business. It's no surprise. It's grossly outperformed you know, all other banks yeah. over that period of time. And Macquarie, it's underappreciated because it's got some of the smartest minds in finance in Australia. They've got a great incentive system. It's a return-based system. They invest in pockets of activity that we could never invest in on our own, infrastructure all over the world. They're finding and making new markets. Mm. They've got a history of of, uh, highly sensible and accretive acquisitions, again, in industries that we couldn't access in the general Australian market. So I think they're big companies, but they've all got unique characteristics which we think over the long run, are underappreciated by investors.
2: Yeah, it is one of the big learnings uh, for me over the journey of doing Equity Mates has been a real evolution from when I started thinking that to make money as an investor you had to find the unknown name Mm. and it was all about like being first to a name before the market realised it. And over time I've realised that some of the best returns, especially of the last decade, have been... Big names that everyone understands, but the market might underappreciate or, you know, in, in the US, we look at the big names and the market just didn't realise how much they could keep compounding. That's the magic, the compounding mm. benefit.
3: But- don't for one minute think that we're not looking to unearth <laughs> the diamond in the rough. Don't, don't for one minute, you know, we're...
1: ASX 50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we are...
3: Don't worry, that is our... Yeah, You know, yeah. that is our daily, weekly, monthly, annual mission. Yeah. We are always trying to find the stock that
2: no one else yeah. has yeah. found. So we will get to some of those other names in a second. But before we do, uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll be back.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
2: So, John, before the break, we spoke a little bit about Ellie's philosophy and some of the bigger names in uh, Ellie's uh, Australian Shares Fund. Um, would love to now turn, I guess, to your view of Australia's market more generally and then some other companies that Ellie are uh, invested in or watching at the moment. So let's start broad, Um, looking at the Australian market uh, and the way that we've started the year. What's your high-level assessment of the market and how it's all going?
3: Look, I know this is going to sound either uh, naive, disingenuous or um, silly, but I I don't really spend my time thinking about the market overall. And I think I mentioned right up front, it's one of the great follies Mm. um, that I have indulged in many times over either as a, an individual or professional investor over the last 30 or 40 years. We spend our time and I spend my time looking at individual opportunities and every day there is an opportunity, the market provides you with an opportunity and I think this recent sell-off has provided us with selective opportunities and those long drawn out periods between the points of extreme excitement, uh, market lows, market shocks and Periods of extreme hubris and greed, uh, really the times we spend doing the work that enable us to take advantage of opportunities in individual, individual stocks when they when they present themselves. It, it's not we're not oblivious to what's happening in a macro sense. We read a lot about it because it's dangerous to invest in a in a vacuum or a mm-hmm. bubble. So we're we're cognizant of it. But uh, in our experience good companies, the better companies and the savvier management teams uh, find a way to win in not all environments, but most environments. Mm. So we really do spend 90% of our time, I'd like to say 100, but but I'm sure we do spend time thinking about other things, but we really spend our time thinking about, okay, where's the best opportunity To deploy capital in the stocks we like, Mm. Mm. and I think Emma quotes, uh, listening in, re-listening to her podcast, that comment, and she does a, there's a great slide she she shows in our presentation about the gyrations in share price movements over the course of a year. It's twenty or thirty or forty or fifty percent from top to bottom in a lot of stocks relative to. The pace at which businesses change. And I think that really is the best explanation of how we think about it. Mm. The businesses mm. change a lot less than the share prices move.
2: Mm. Yeah. Em- Emma had a quote uh, in that interview that I have definitely stolen, but I think it's probably my favorite quote from five years of doing this podcast, which is markets move quickly, but businesses change slowly.
3: It's a great summary or characterization
2: of, of how we think about things. Mm. Mm.
1: And that is in reference to Emma Fisher's interview. I think it was early 2021.
2: Yeah, it was in that brief period where we could get back in of the studio calm, between yeah, lockdowns. Brief period so, yeah. of calm. Yeah. So
1: if you haven't listened to Emma, obviously she also works at Early. go and check out that interview because it because it was great.
2: And if you can't get enough of Emma on Equity Mates, <laughs> uh, she also did an interview on You're In Good Company. So there's plenty of Emma to, to true, listen to after true. this one. There's yeah. never enough of him.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> John, as we said at the top of the episode... We love to get stock specific so you've brought two stocks today Premier Investments and Nick Scarly, both of which I assume would fall under that sort of thematic of underappreciated quality so Let's start with, or which, which would you like to start with, Premier or Nick Scarley? Uh, why don't we start with, with Nick? Okay, let's start with Nick. For those that uh, don't know what the company does, can you give a brief explanation and then talk us through the process, the investment thesis and why it fits the, the early framework.
3: Yeah, Nick Scarly is, a, uh, is a, a medium to upmarket furniture retailer. They have about 60 outlets in Australia and New Zealand with a plan to grow to about 85 over the next few years uh, and earlier this year uh, maybe late last year they acquired plush which is um, more Dow market chain uh, furniture chain uh, which they'll uh, integrate into their own business over time so it's one of Australia's largest uh, furniture retailers run by Anthony Scarly one of our favorite one of our favorite CEOs taking it through the process uh, the balance sheet is in pristine condition it's got neck Virtually net cash, despite uh, the purchase of of plush, which they paid out of their own their own cash reserves and a little bit of borrowing. But that debt will get paid down very quickly. Uh, in terms of the business, it's um, it's got a strong position in middle to up market furniture. Uh, I'm not quite sure where they're going to take plush in terms of its market positioning. It probably balances the profile to keep it where it is relative to Nick's businesses, but. It's a very, very efficient operator, earning return on capital in its existing NIC businesses of over thirty percent. Plush is a lower margin, lower returning business, uh, and I think the aim is to uh, improve the financial returns from Plush and therefore of the of the broader group. Management is uh, is a key part of of our process, and people say, "Well, what what is you know what is." good management, well, good management, and you'd say there's actually some crossover here because good management manages the financial position well, good management, you know, manages the business and the business profile and the growth. But uh, for us, it's a little more than that and particularly in an industry like retailing, which is a very tough industry and it can be quite binary. The big winners tend to be relatively big relative to the losers. It's a highly leveraged game in terms of operational leverage uh, so it's an industry generally where skill gets, it really does get rewarded and lack of skill uh, gets punished. So for us, the mantra is retail is detail and Anthony Scarly and the team at Nick Scarly they're a team that really have a very strong eye on detail and I think they really care and live a, live the business. And I, I think one of the best things we get to do is over time is to meet management teams uh, and differentiate between... Teams that care and teams for whom it's it's just the job and people say, Well, you know, what's your edge over thirty odd years? And it's not necessarily assessment of business. I think we all know what good businesses are, we all know what strong balance sheet looks like. Mm-hmm. It's really differentiating between people who are motivated and care about what they do versus just taking the paycheck and Anthony Scarly and the team at Nick Scarly amply uh amply fit that. So uh I think it's underappreciated as well. I think it's the, the market has got the forecast for the business declining over the next year or two, I guess, coming off sort of what what has been sort of accelerated, brought forward sales due to COVID as people spent money mm. couldn't spend money overseas, spent it locally. But if you look at the store o- openings, the integration of plush, we find it very hard for the earnings to go backwards over the next um, couple of years. So it it ticks a lot of boxes. Uh, in fact, it ticks all the boxes for us and it's <laughs> one of our bigger positions in the early Australian Share Fund.
1: What's your investment horizon when you do these sorts of pieces of analysis?
3: Uh, three to five years. I think that's, that's uh, a time period which you can forecast with some reasonable degree of confidence and we're drawn... To businesses it's not on the label in terms of our process but we're naturally drawn to businesses where there's a higher degree of predictability in their earnings than businesses where there's less predictability and now allows us to pay or enables us to pay or buy into those businesses with a greater level of conviction.
2: I, I really appreciated the conversation there around, like, what is good management, like what you're looking for. You mentioned that Anthony was your CEO, uh, one of your favourite CEOs. I think maybe we should just make that a standing question to ask expert investors who's your favourite CEO? CEO. And
1: we've yeah.
3: all got our, and he's not even my most, f- uh, he's, he's, oh, he's well, my, my all right. all-time favourite CEO. Do we ask Who's your all-time a, Oh, my all-time favourite CEO is a guy, Roger Brown from ARB Corporation. Uh, oh, yeah,
0: okay.
3: It floated on what is a relic of a, uh, a bygone era, the Melbourne Stock Exchange second board back in the ne- early 1980s when I started. And ARB started, it floated on that nascent second board and I've watched the company really just grow phenomenally over 40-odd years and Anthony is one of the best blokes you'll ever meet. Self-effacing, modest, incredibly pa- passionate and caring about bull bars and four-wheel drive <laughs> accessories. And he's grown it to be a truly global company over 40-odd years. And apart from a penchant for for nice cars, uh, he's virtually unchanged yeah. over that time. And, and uh, he's just a ripping bloke and a incredible... Uh, incredible CEO who's built an amazing business in what's a very competitive local and global market.
2: Yeah. Mm. ARB gets a lot of love in our uh, Equitymates community. And Understandably. Yeah, I think, you know, if you build a multi-billion-dollar company, an interest in nice cars is forgivable. <laughs> <Yeah>. Fair enough, <laughs> yeah.
3: But having said that, only one nice car that I know <laughs> that he has. He may have more, but uh, he's
1: well and truly entitled to Yeah. Do we throw in um, worst CEO? Well, I'm <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, We can yeah, take that
3: yeah. offline, we can yeah, take it offline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, f- there's plenty of those. Yeah.
2: I do like that though because the more we ask that question, you know, you, you mentioned some character traits there and if we keep asking it, I feel like we'll start mm. to see a, a, some overlap between uh, some different names and their traits.
3: Well, there's an honesty as well. I think that's the other thing about the, the good uh, management teams and CEOs, they'll give you the unvarnished... Mm. Uh, view of things It's not They're not trying to tell you that You know Black is white or grey Or spin you a line That You know They're just very candid mm.
1: yeah. Yeah, interested to know how someone like Anthony or the CEOs you're speaking to at the moment um, now responding to you know ever more sort of pressure and and demand from investors on the sustainability side and you know it's something that's really important to the equity mates community and looking for companies that are actively addressing that so what are you sort of seeing from these CEOs I think the
3: CEOs the businesses that or a lot of the businesses we invest in uh, and I think you've got a sense that we have a disproportionate tilt towards owner-managed, owner-managed mm. businesses who have a vested interest in making their businesses, uh, I mean, they're not naive to the way the world's going. They take a truly long-term view about their businesses, so they're highly motivated to make their businesses truly sustainable. Mm. I think the average tenure of a CEO in Australia is four and a half years I'm not sure that a lot of businesses are truly. I'm not sure that ties up with a truly long-term, mm-hmm. truly long-term thinking about the sustainability of a business. It might be, you know, saying what they need to say in the in the here and now, but sustainability is is you're more likely to find truly sustainable companies or companies that think about it deeply in in owner managed businesses where they've got skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, uh, speaking of skin in the game um, and also I guess speaking about, you know, we've spoken about some of the best retailers in Australia. West Farmers for me is the, the quintessential example of just brilliant retailers. We mentioned Anthony Scully. But uh, at the top of a lot of people's lists would be Solomon Lou And um, the second company that we're talking about today is Premier Investments. Um, so tell us a little bit about... Um, Premier for people who haven't heard about it before and, and why you like it?
3: Premier's got uh, three main businesses. Uh, it's got uh, an apparel business, uh, which is probably considered by some to be the run to the leader, but it's a good cash cow. It's businesses like Just Jeans, JJ's, Portman's and Dotty, Jackie E. It's got uh, the sleepwear business, which is the Peter Alexander Brand, which has been a phenomenal success through COVID and even beyond, uh, and Smiggle, which is the, uh, I call it the kids' accessories business, uh, which uh, I think is, has surpassed most people's expectations for a long, long time and continues to do very well. So it's a mix of businesses. Mm-hmm. Solly Lou is the, is the chair of the business, but He's got his hands in and around the business all the time. In fact, uh, so much so that most Saturdays, wherever he's in the world, he'll be wandering around shopping centres, comparing and contrasting his businesses or Premier's businesses with all sorts of other businesses. He's thinking about retail mm. as much as I'm thinking about AFL or cricket or. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice.
3: <laughs> Investing a lot of the time, but other <laughs> things as well. Um, so he is. Uh, talking about caring about, uh, the business they, they, he owns 40% of the, of the company. So he's not only, you know, financially uh, motivated, you know, he truly lives retailing, which, uh, in the spirit of retail is detail. You do actually have to really live, uh, live retailing. He's done it without, I think the business has had net cash for almost all its listed life, I should mention the other business, the other investments it has, it owns about a third of Breville, which has been a true global success, which Premier bought many, 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 many years ago and has made multiples uh, on its investment. Um, And it's got a uh, high team, mid to high team stake in Meijer. And Sol's got a bit of flack for that as going off piste. And I'm not sure, we're not sure what his long term plan is, but I think his general thinking is probably it's got a lot of customers. It's got three billion dollars of sales. Uh, he knows a bit about property, which is is um, integral to retail businesses. Surely he could do more with those assets than the the current management.
2: When you think about that Myers stuff, like it, obviously we're looking from the outside in, but it feels personal in some ways. Like it's 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 intense how how passionate he is about it. Do you ever, do you worry about like? Uh, Getting, like, distraction or, like, taking your eye off the... Losing the forest for the trees maybe is the right term. With
3: Sol, no. He has been involved in Coles and Meyer. He was back in the old, old, old days. He was a big shareholder in Meyer Mm -hmm. when it got taken over by Coles. I don't think it's a sort of sentimental or nostalgic exercise. I think he genuinely does see value and he's underwater at the moment but he truly takes a long, long, long-term view. I mean, he bought Country Road, bought into Country Road many years ago and I think he made, it could have been 20, 30 times his money in that. Breville's been a, again, that's probably, a, it could be a 10, 15, 20 bagger. They're different businesses, I, I get it. And department stores, you'd say, are, are, you know, relics of a bygone era, but I don't ever underestimate Sol. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's It's a tiny diversion from the main game. Yeah. The other element, the part of management, it's not just soul. Uh, Mark McGuinness did a terrific job before him and Richard Murray, who did a great job at JB Hi-Fi, one of our other mm. favourite uh, companies, retailers. He's a great, enthous- a great, savvy, enthusiastic uh, CEO who who thinks out of the box and is he's in the well and truly cares camp as well.
2: Yeah, the JB Hi-Fi, hi-fi story is just an incredible story of... A retailer that was able to change with the times. Like, uh, ten years ago it was full of CDs and DVDs and you just expected it to follow Sanity and HMV and those retailers out the door.
3: They're classy operators Mm. and very self-effacing to boot, which I love. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, John, before we move to the final three questions of uh, of our interview, firstly, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your time. Um, if our audience want to know more about what you do and what Early does, what would be the best place to go?
3: I think to check the Early website. Nice. Uh, and the the vehicle that people can invest in through us uh, for us is the Early Australian Share Fund.
2: And they can do that uh, privately, or like off market, but also it, there's yeah, there's a, a, listed, there's a, a listed. Yeah. And the ticker is
1: AASF? Yes. Yeah. Nice. yeah. So people okay, can go check that out. So that's earlyfundsmanagement.com.au. We'll put, notes in there, yeah, put the link in the show notes. But, uh, John, it's that time. Three final questions that we always ask, so uh, let's crack through them.
2: So the first one, John, uh, do you have any books that you consider must read?
1: The formative book I read was a
3: book by Sir John Templeton. I'm sure it's absolutely not in uh, publication anymore. That was 40 years old. I've forgotten <laughs> what it was about. The truly instructive books were One Up on Wall Street mm. uh, and Beating the Street by Peter Lynch uh, from Fidelity who ran the uh, the Magellan Fund, strangely enough, for 20, 30-odd years and had an incredible long-term track record. And the other book, uh, which is not specifically about investment but it really opened my eyes to lots of different ways to look at, managing companies or running businesses was Outsiders. I think it's William Thorndike. Yeah, yeah.
2: that's a great book.
3: Uh, it's a small book and it's it's eight case studies of CEOs who who just did things a bit differently. Mm. And in our game, investing, you do have to do things a bit differently and that's why the 86 managers in the, in the survey with 86 different – 86 or thereabout different ways – or special formulas for trying to beat the index, they're all trying to do things a bit differently. Mm. They, they don't obviously all win in the long run, but you do have to uh, to do things a bit differently. And so that was a book that really helped me actually understand uh, in the spirit of we look for quality businesses, what, what a quality business was. Yeah. And and what underappreciated, more importantly, what underappreciated quality was. The
2: mm-hmm. second uh, question we like to finish with, Uh, just thinking about the company itself, don't worry about valuation or what it's trading at or anything like that. What's the best company you've ever come across?
3: Uh, I think probably ARB and not just because of Roger Brown, uh, not just because of its phenomenal stock market performance but because it turned the germ of an idea and a passion into... Uh, a passion for a product uh, and a service into a business. It grew from I can't even think what the market cap when it floated was twenty million dollars to. It's
2: now over three billion. Yeah, three that?
3: or four billion dollars. That the management has remained, you know, just incredibly self-effacing and humble over time. There's been virtually no hubris. Um, to build a global business, and I don't think they've raised a dime of equity oh, wow. in that time. So you think about the things that that wow. we believe in as investors at Early, and what I believe in personally.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, I think that's, and it's it's now got a pathway, unlike many Australian businesses And it's a tricky question because you think, oh, it's just businesses that you know are dominant in Australia. The really truly exponential returns uh, come from businesses that can parlay. Mm. Something special in Australia, something special globally and that's what they've been able to do.
2: Yeah, yeah. crazy. And then final question John uh, if you think back to your early days as a 20 year old investing in Plumrose Australia, what advice <laughs> would you give your younger self? Oh that
3: is a really tough question. I think start investing. get investing early, try and educate yourself. It's incredibly rewarding. And every now and then I'm reminded what a incredible privilege it is to do this job. Um, when we had this young um, work experience student in the other day and uh, I, as I said earlier, what, what did you learn? I learned that the index is, is a whole lot of different stories. Mm-hmm. And I remember I loved those stories when I started as a 21-year-old. We didn't have a computerised system. We had a card system and my job was to transcribe the profit results of nearly 300 companies on this card system every result period and I learned about 300 different names that I'd never really, I'd never really known about. So I think um, it's been a constant source of curiosity and learning and fun and obviously some mishaps along the way but it's been rewarding financially, it's been rewarding intellectually, it's been rewarding in terms of uh, the people I've met along the way so get educated, get investing, and also try and. Uh, and you're not going to do it initially because you don't. This only comes with maturity. Try and understand what your temperament is, and as an investor, don't try and play. Don't try and play someone else's game. What is your What is your temperament? uh, as an
1: investor. Mm. Love that. Don't play someone else's game. Great way to, great way to finish. So thank you so much, John, for your time today. I know that so much of our community would have taken a lot of, from that interview. I certainly did. And I'm, I'm sure Ren did as well. So we appreciate it. We will, uh, certainly be touching base with you at some point to invite you back on to get your thoughts on markets and how, how everything's going so thank you so much
3: thanks guys i've enjoyed it
1: hey thanks for listening to this episode of equity mates we love hearing from you so drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review Also, a reminder that the Equitymates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next
0: time. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equitymates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services licence and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.